Hi everyone, uh, it's TF. It's it's the free one. We're all here. Uh, it's Milo, Hussein, Alice, and Riley. Uh, we are back. <laughs> I'm back. James Icast. Yes, that's right. We're all back from taking several weeks off, and what mm. weeks they were to take off. <laughs> what weeks they were. Let me tell you, when I'm taking off a week, I'm we'll, ready we'll to work take ahead. Off. Right, we'll have a bit of a backlog, and nothing's mm. going to happen. We no, we yeah. no we got we got back to the studio and we found that James Acaster was sleeping on mm. our sofa and we were on we were asked James Acaster yeah. why are you sleeping on our sofa and uh, he told us the story about how he got cucked by Mr Bean I may have got like the timelines mm. wrong on that but I think yeah. that's yeah Mr like, Bean Mr Bean cucked James Acaster yeah. and then the Queen was so shocked by this news that she fucking died <laughs> uh, yeah yeah. <laughs> and then James's mum kicked him out because he did quaaludes on the day that the Queen died. It was all terrible. Enough, enough about good friend of the show, uh, definitely person who's in the joke, James Acaster. <laughs> mm. I want to introduce yeah, definitely our, not someone who is being sent this by his yeah. friends every time this happens, and is just sort of looking <laughs> at his phone screen <laughs> like. Fuck. <laughs> Uh, I want to introduce mm. our guest, uh, a returning champion, uh, a, a, a true favorite of ours to talk to whenever the topic turns to con- comparative history or indeed much else. It's Patrick Wyman of the Tides of History podcast. Patrick, how's it going? Hey, it's going fantastic. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Patrick Wyman, coming at you live from the mists of time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Patrick Wyman, who is currently, uh, from your perspective, in the past, where he talks mm. about I, That's right. I am. I am. This is it's it is time is relative. Look, like I'm I have no idea whether it's the Bronze Age could be the Iron Age. Some places mm. like we may be dealing with a Paleolithic situation. I honestly <laughs> don't know. Like podcasting microphone. Yeah, yeah. Ever ever since uh, ever since they legalized weed in Arizona, much has been <laughs> unclear to me. Mm. I'd like to top Alex uh, Alice's joke with a uh, past Rick uh, Wen man. Uh, <laughs> <Pastric> <laughs> Wen. That's right. It's, yeah, past Rick Wen is like specifically uh, historical. Historiography, as opposed to history, <laughs> <He's a> teleological <laughs> yeah. historian. Yeah. So, so uh, I have a couple of things things to talk about uh, in, at, at the top of the episode. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, what I'd like to get into, sort of as we go on, is with the development of, let's say, things mm. as they have been going uh, in the UK, especially, but the UK and the US, I think more broadly, mm. mostly the UK. They've been pretty chill, apart from all the grieving Ooh. we've been doing. Obviously, I've been increasingly interested in the idea of. Uh, rapid collapses in the legitimacy of whether it's governments, ruling paradigms, whatever, we can kind of put them around this paradigm of a, a sudden and unexpected um, uh, a collapse when some yeah. ruling idea, person, people it's, stops it's, it's doing It's very funny that to, like, uh, for Britain to open the door to the unexpected sudden collapse in state legitimacy room and find Iran in there as well, having got in by another door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before we get there, uh, I want to revisit a couple of old friends. Uh, we all remember uh, Shamath uh, Palahapatia. We do. King we remember SPACs. a SPAC very fondly. Uh, yeah. Sorry, King of SPACs is something a school bully calls you <laughs> when you're in year 10. So, um, I, a couple of these we've talked about, such as Open Door and Clover Health. Others we haven't, like Virgin Galactic. Or, I forget. V- Virgin Galactic, also from. something a school bully calls you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, as well as uh, SoFi. Uh, mm. Anything for that for school bullies? No, or no that's a mulligan. Mm. Come back to me on yeah. the next one. Uh, 
I have, t- I, have t- yeah, I have a yeah. checklist here. Yeah, I have yeah. two major bits that I want to get into this episode. So I'll let yeah. you know when I fucking when I yeah. tick them off here. Yeah. So uh, these are all down from their debuts between sixty and se- sixty eight and seventy eight percent. Uh, so mm. whoopsie daisy! It looked like another of these uh, great financial innovations was actually basically just um, a kind of byproduct of interest rates. Yet another uh, cargo yeah, the, cult thing. The we've podcast seen in the that economy. told you so has told you so once again. Yeah, yeah. Where uh, it it appears that a bunch of people thought that they have, um, with some whiz bang new thing, uh, managed to sort of generally kind of uh, outsmart the rest of the world when it turns out they were just in the right place at the right time to be carried up to be carried along by an unrelated rising tide that was lifting most boats why it's a rather simple scheme in a sort of trapezoidal <laughs> shape in order <laughs> to keep producing money for all of its investors why the only possible condition is a simple one which is that uh, money must remain free forever <laughs> now I don't see any problems with this here stratagem, do you, Colonel? Uh, well, why this this fast talking on the fast talking? This, <laughs> yeah. uh, who told, this, this is very this relaxed, bucolic um, uh, uh, southern gentleman yeah, this, has a point. Mm. Yeah, this is a southern gentleman who's rolled into the studio with a bunch of um, just too good to wi- too good to be true business ideas has a point. Oh no, he's died. Hi again. I'm <laughs> Colonel J.G.A. Castor. No, no. I say let's crack up. <laughs> this is why they lost the I'm fucking never going civil war. New character. New character. <laughs> I am never going on holiday again. Uh, all, I, I, the, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. Uh, there's one more piece of um, sort of a top, top matter I want to discuss before we get into the meat of the episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fully on board. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. back. I'm back. Top matter, you say. The first moon resort, everyone. Let's could go. Be built in Dubai. Are, yeah. they, are they building a moon? Uh, yeah, they finally built the moon. Earth has been too long without a moon, and yeah. Dubai has looked at this problem and said, "What, <laughs> what if, what there if was the moon was more moon? like Dubai? What if right. Dubai was more like the moon? Fantastic! A great cultural interchange. Yeah. Fantastic. What if? Yeah. What if the moon had all the American fast food brands, but all the advertising was yeah. in Arabic? What if that? What yeah. if there was a Five Guys in the Sea of Tranquility? Uh, sorry, Patrick, you were saying something. Uh, I was not. I was just thinking about how much I'd like to go to a Five Guys in the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> uh, so, this is this is, the designs are in front of me. Uh, you don't really need to see just it. Picture, just the picture the, picture, the picture of Dubai, Dubai on the moon, and then picture uh, ah, no, other way around. Okay, other way around. Uh, it's picture Dubai, and then where the Burj Khalifa is, because I assume in this universe of this proposal, sure. they tear that down. Um, Planned obsolescence. And then instead, picture a moon that is about uh, higher than any oh. other skyscraper. It's a big cool. moon. Okay. Uh, okay. So this is this is from Dezine. Uh Designers uh, Matthews and Henderson have created a concept for a 224 meter high spherical resort. Oh, so it's a moon on a Earth. Moon it's not even the real moon. No, no, no. It's a. It's a. They built a moon uh, in oh Dubai. Oh my god. Okay. Mm. Even better. And it's one of the least true things yeah. in Dubai. Yeah. Uh, mm, that is true. Name, named Moon, the resort <laughs> imaginative of a spherical steel structure enclosing a hotel and the Moon's surface attraction built on a circular podium. Henderson right. told Dezine, quote, There is nothing remotely similar to the Moon anywhere on planet Earth. <laughs> 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 oh. so we can't 
can't even make a joke about this. It's perfect. This is, this was written yeah, by yeah. Chris Morris. This isn't a real article. <laughs> to which I might want to suggest: Have you considered the Atacama Desert and just building the Atacama Desert in Dubai? Yeah. Because the thing, the thing about Utah? Dubai, famously, Let's... is that it doesn't have enough <laughs> desert. No, not at all. Mm. Uh, it will be a fully integrated, contemporary, luxurious destination resort encompassing a unique signature attraction, enabling guests to walk along the lunar surface surface while exploring an authentic lunar colony. <laughs> you know, an authentic lunar colony, just it, like it the does, real It planet. does speak to the sort Wait, of like narrowing of imaginations, right? That we've gone from oh, maybe we'll go to the moon to maybe we can go to the moon in Dubai, which is just as good as the real moon, maybe. Well, it's kind of like, you know, Disney yeah. World versus Disneyland Paris, right? You've got the moon, and then you've got the moon, brackets, Dubai. Yeah. Like, what if the moon was staffed by guys from Bangladesh who've had yeah, their I mean, passport think about it. There's, there's a ton of, like, cultural uh, franchises, right, that have had, like, outposts in the UAE. Like, the Louvre has a thing in, in Dubai. I think the Guggenheim's a thing in Dubai. Why should not the moon have a thing in Dubai? Mm. Yeah, it's a franchise. The moon doesn't have a thing in Dubai because it has no capital. It has it, it has no need for capital. Like if it did, then the moon would have been represented <laughs> in Dubai quite some time ago. But I have I have a question about Dubai as a somebody who doesn't know very much about it. Is it like six flags for rich dumb people? Yeah, kind kind of. I I was there quite recently uh, as like, you know, just as like a stopover thing. It's changed a lot. So like part of the city, part of it is kind of like very like working class, like there's lots of like sort of South Asian, like the South Asian working class, like they have like their shops and their communities around there. The stuff that like Dubai is now known for because they turfed all the working class people out of those areas is six flags for like rich influences. But it's also like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like having an insane experience on the internet because it can't really decide like what it is. So you just end up sort of getting a mishmash of stuff which is mostly just like American brands and content advertising. But, you know, you'll sort of walk, you'll walk on a street and you'll find a bunch of American fast food chains. And then you'll suddenly like see a mosque. And then you'll also see like a, like next to that mosque is like a giant, uh, what, like a rock climbing wall that no one can use because it's too hot yeah. in there. <laughs> but for some sure. reason, like yeah. it still exists. So you just like, yeah, it's just kind of this like random, ra- like they just take all the stuff that they think is cool uh, and interesting, and just like shove it in one place, and they don't really yeah. think about. I, I, how I it's recommend work. I recommend playing the documentary okay. Spec Ops: The Line if you want to understand Dubai. <laughs> what, what what I see is Dubai as is um, if just doing cocaine normally isn't exciting enough for you, and you want to do cocaine in a place where like. It's kind of fine, but if you get caught, mm. you'll be killed. Then Dubai is the yeah. place for also, you. Also, if you want okay. all your like NPCs in your game to like all have like you know British accents, but like Essex ac- mm. accents, then that's then it's the place to go. So you ever been in a fucking moon? You can. Yeah, it's also a great place to go if you want to go to the moon. But uh, Virgin Galactic has unfortunately closed because it was funded in a stupid if, way. They've put fucking cycle lanes on the moon. So. so so within the sphere, because remember it's a gigantic sphere, bigger than sort of several skyscrapers. Uh, there could there would be a twenty-story hotel inside the moon sphere. Okay, so my my crucial question about yes, this is the bit love. where they said you can walk on the surface of the moon, but they also said the moon. Yeah, is gravity's spherical. still real. Um, and I'm just uh, magnet boots. Is it going to have its own oh, gravitational oh, field? No, What's no, going to go on? There's a large portion of inside the moon that you can that simulates a lunar surface you can walk on. So there's two lunar surfaces: one that faces outside and one that's flat but inside. So really, you're walking Vampire around a sort of big, dirty ass room. moon. Ah, <laughs> uh, it says 
It will have 10 acres of authentic undulating lunar surface incorporating a highly detailed working lunar colony. Again, no such thing as an authentic lunar colony. It doesn't exist. Anything is an authentic lunar colony. It's not referring to anything. It's a a sign without a signified. Yeah, uh, uh, me and Jason have got this job over in Dubai, building a sea of tranquility. <laughs> uh, so, this specific area... <laughs> job, cashing in now. They said, this specific area will be utilized for guest visits and also astronaut training, which is very ambitious. Astronaut training? <laughs> it will also... That isn't what you train astronauts for! They're like, how to walk on some rocks. <laughs> that isn't the difficult bit. It's all the other stuff! Like flying the spaceship and like the gravity and shit like that. All the stuff you can't do in a hotel in Dubai. (laughs) The colony, they said, will feature multiple global corporations and space agencies and a university campus requirement. Why will it feature (laughs) those? I'll spoil that for you, Milo. It won't. (laughs) They're just... (laughs) Well, uh, Alice, Alice, I have a response to that, which is this. they say... Unlike many fantasy proposals featured on Dazeem, said Henderson... (laughs) Where where are you getting this information from again? Okay. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Unlike many fantasy proposals featured on Dazeem, the moon will actually be built, as it's entirely logical from a built environment perspective, and the business plan is extremely compelling. Entirely logical from a built environment perspective. Yeah, people want a mixed-use, walkable moon, you know? I'm just, I'm just cocking my head like a confused dog. Just like, like my head keeps tilting further and further to the side. Like I'm trying to make sense of this, and eventually my neck's just going to snap completely off. Like every single thing you said was somehow dumber than the thing that came before, and I, I just. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It feels every like the the description of this feels like somebody is taking a like a meat mallet and going to work on my brain, mm-hmm. like just just squeezing every logical thought out of it. Wait, no, they're going to gonna, they're going to build the moon, <laughs> and uh, a Russian oligarch is going to sadly decide to commit suicide by jumping off of top of moon in Dubai. <laughs> While handcuffed to own ankles in suitcase. Very sad. Mental health. If only Prince Gary had spoken to him before this sad event. What, just like a a, a Russian version of talk to your bloke? That's right. (laughs) Particularly enjoyed the HG on Prince Gary there, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, But look. I want to get to the the meat. Yeah, we got to get to joke look, one. As fun as, yeah, as fun as Moon is, uh, I and as much as I'm very excited to announce our new podcasting studio on Moon. Yeah. Um, oh wait, actually no. Funniest possible thing about oh, the Moon okay, is fine. they accidentally build the Moon too well, and it causes a huge tidal wave to subsume <laughs> Dubai, and also sets the periods of women haywire all over the Middle East. Th- third funniest that thing cool. that happens to the moon someone 9-11's the moon because like there's a lot of things in this yeah. world you can 9-11 right I'm not advocating that you 9-11 anything mm. however some of them like a built replica of the moon that's that's an aesthetic like that's a thing to yeah, it's, it's 9-11-able it's, it's very 9-11-able yeah. so so look I have yeah. one more moon question just before we go. Like, guys, I'm not super familiar with astrology as a thing, but would astrology now have to account for the presence of the moon? Yeah, moon so too. when people talk about yeah. like Mercury being in retrograde and shit, yeah, you've got like that's got now have that now has to be a factor in your calculations. Like, that's if you're wondering why you're feeling off as a Virgo. Well, they could well, be. This, could this be is moon the thing. Too. This is the thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the long there. game, right? Nostradamus is going to start making perfect sense because all of his shit was accounting yeah. for moon too, which hadn't been built yet. Ah, uh, true. 
Guy in yep, Dubai yep. getting divorced because every day for three months he turns to his wife at 6pm and goes, full moon tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, it's going to be shit for Dubai werewolves. I'm... I mean, I'm looking forward to when Dubai like does like Dubai will do like a mental health campaign where they get rid of the moon and you've got to like look at the thing and be like no moon <laughs> in a big box. Yeah. Oh no. Okay. So look, look, children. Um, what I this is leading to what I want to talk about fundamentally, right? Which is to look back in history and to think about moons <laughs> of history. What <laughs> yeah. moons of their bit? Second moon. Well, until recently, yeah, just moon the one. Of history. Uh, but you know, now maybe two. Uh, we can finally pluralize that list. Um, we, we, look, it, it's been a one-entry list for too long. Uh, and, do, and just like with so many things, Dubai has something to say about it. Um, more Louvres, for example. But no, um, I wanted to talk th- about about this because, as I said earlier, right, there is this um, this long-standing, I think, uh, a mission on, Bihar- on, beh- on the part of the British and an American... Although in, the British seem to be intensifying their quest to do this, while the Americans seem to be not pulling back necessarily, but also not intensifying as much, um, uh, of their mission to essentially uh, wind down Britain as a yeah, going concern. Well, this is, this is my theory, right, is that we've seen a rapid gear change has taken place. Uh, the you know the office for budget responsibility has stopped publishing reports for the foreseeable future of like how the the economy is going to do. Interest rates are way up. Uh, all of the sort of like interventions uh, that the the trust ministry has now instituted look more than anything else like a sort of a smash and grab. Right, you try and do all of the Thatcherite stuff you want to do as quickly as possible, as hard as possible, because. You know, six months' time, there could be riots, Keir Starmer could be Prime Minister, and you know he's not going to roll anything back. So instead of doing the, like... I welcome the new Instead of trying to do the, like, relatively softly, softly approach of even Boris, what we're doing is, like, pedal to the metal. And my frame of reference for understanding this is the movie Heat. Now, the movie Heat, you may be aware, is about a crew mm. of bank robbers, and it demonstrates... A law mm-hmm. about a crew of bank robbers, which is that every crew of bank robbers has to contain the crazy one. In this, in Heat, that guy is called Wayne Grow, right? Liz Truss is <laughs> the Tory party's Wayne Grow, right? Because, because much like the movie, at the drop of a hat, they are ready to rock and roll and to do all of the extractive shit as quickly as possible and as violently as possible. At a certain point, you feel the heat coming. <laughs> and when you feel the heat... You got to open the market. <laughs> so, so uh, for just for to put this all into some context, right? That what's happened is uh, as trust has come in during a unprecedented cost of living uh, crisis, uh, is essentially going to um, do things such as freezing energy bills by borrowing to subsidize the profits of the, uh, in fact, the private equity companies that mm-hmm. own the energy, uh, the generators. Yeah. Uh, wow, what could possibly go wrong with now, such a scheme? But, 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 now, does she intend to repay this, pray tell? Now, that's being worked out, but of course, the uh, the the scuttlebutt is that the but will be taken off your bills in the future, so you've basically taken out a mortgage on your power bill. Why? But additionally, that would make future bills more expensive, <laughs> and there's no guarantee that energy prices will fall in the medium term. Now, uh, now at the same time, though, uh, we're looking at a sort of large package of uh, tax cuts that are combined with spending cuts, such as recently announced kicking 120,000 people more or less off of universal credit unless they can like magically create more high-paying yeah, wh- jobs. Wayne Grosher, you know, I'm not wrong. I'm yeah. not crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, and this is all happening sort of in the context where, and this is from, from the FT, from a story from John Byrne Murdoch that came out um, a few days ago, uh, where in Britain, uh, where you look at the deci income deciles, right? Deciles of earners. So bottom 10%, mm -hmm. one decile, top 10%, the other decile, right? Um, what's ha what has essentially happened is that the lowest earning brackets of, the, of British households have a standard of living that is 20% lower than the same decile in Slovenia, for example. But this wasn't always the case. This is a product of the last 10 years. And that's not to say that people in other countries ought to have a less of a standard of living than people in other certain countries, right? It's not as though there's an order here and the British poor ought to be better off than the poor of other countries. Right? <laughs> what the fuck are you saying? But rather, uh, that, that impoverishing these people has generally been, like in the global south, has been a choice made by wealthy people in the global north. And until recently, there was a kind of, and I will turn to Patrick on this one, social contract where we say, look, you're going to have an yeah, you're, you're okay get standard of living. You're going to get Netflix. Yeah. You're going to get you know yeah, whatever junk but, food you want. All of this. And what and what's going to happen is that you're going to keep consenting to being a part of this system in whatever way consent happens. Uh, and a lot of the sort of more brutal extraction is going to take place elsewhere. But what we've seen in the last ten or eleven years is that increasingly brutal extraction whether it comes from um, increased rent-seeking, whether it comes from slash-and-grab privatizations, as you talk about, Alice, right? It's taking place increasingly here. Well, it seems, Riley, as though what you're describing is the violence of the imperial periphery, but surely we here in the imperial <laughs> court are insulated from, from such uh, yeah. unfortunate goings-on. No, no, no. I want to sort of turn, turn to Patrick, right, and be like, what do you make as a historian of this kind of dramatic... Uh, you might say, rupture of an implicit social contract? I, I think that we have to, uh, th that the answer to this question lies in making contingent the social contract that we're familiar with, right? So that is very explicitly a product of the first and second world wars and mass mobilization military action, right? Where you have to put the entire nation in arms in order to meet some sort of perceived external national threat. And so you as the elite of the country are essentially purchasing buy-in from the masses by means of social programs, by means of not cracking down on unionizations, as was the case during World War One, right? So they're just like, okay, I don't, we don't care. We're not going to have any strikes. Do whatever you have to do to make the strikes not happen in order for production to continue. If you need to have the whole nation involved in some kind of war effort, you're going to need to purchase their consent by means of including them in, in, in the state project. And so this is, you know, post Second World War when you have an entire two entire generations of people who have done military service on behalf of their country, you are rewarding their buy-in with social programs. This is this is the thesis. It's right. This is the, the Walter Scheidel and the Great Leveler. The idea being that one of the only things outside of disaster that reduces inequality is mass mobilization. And in we're we're now you know, 70 years past that. We're not living in a world of, of mass national mobilization for any greater purpose anymore. We're living in a world where elites have kind of decided that they no longer need buy-in from the people, that that is no longer going to be the source of legitimacy that they rely on in order to get people to, to support government. And, and that's really, I think, the thing that I want to talk about as we zoom out and as we look in sort of comparator cases in mm -hmm. history as well, right, is this idea of legitimacy uh, because we there's the word is thrown around quite a bit, but I think that it's one of these things that it would uh, it, we could do with a bit of a better definition of a better and more precise understanding of it. 
And so, like, when we talk about what previous iterations of the Tory governments did, right, you mentioned this yourself, Alice, right? Like, the Liz Truss government, yes. the Wayne Grow Liz Truss government. <laughs> With a big sort of, like, uh, skull much, mullet. Much, yeah. 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 <laughs> is, is, as sort of cast aside any sort of pretension of the previous two Tory administrations, which, I, which saw sort of the, um, you might say, events of 16 as a kind of... Um, Rearing of warning the, uh, signal, uh, yeah, yeah. A, a warning sign, right? That things that that we need to um, increase the our legitimacy, our per- our perceived right to rule among um, people who have been left behind. Now, and and that resulted in May's mm-hmm. Theresa May's burning injustices, which she obviously failed to remedy, and Boris's leveling up in, uh, agenda. Because again, like they didn't really want to do it; they wanted to be seen to be doing it. Yeah, because it was essentially a PR. And, and in relation to like being seen to do things, we can also talk about another great factor in in, in legitimacy, which is sleaze, right? And the sort of like various scandals of successive Tory governments. And I can get to develop my second theory here, which is that every British political party can be th- like theorized within the concept of two like 2000s British youth TV programs you're either a, like you're either a skins party or an in-betweeners party right okay, and so yeah, sure. and so like my problem with with Liz Truss not my only problem but I, I think the biggest like sleaze problem with Liz Truss is that she and her cabinet are having too much fun this was also Boris's problem right they're having fun they're doing their own shit it's you know it's, it's depraved sure whatever but we don't care about that Unnamed of them are having affairs or doing blow. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Having unlubed anal sex in their offices. Yes, (laughs) they're all wearing neon hoodies for some reason. Pretty much, I think genuinely you could fit the trust cabinet into the opening of Skins, and it would work. Um, And and that's one of the things that like it grinds on people a bit, right? Like you're not just immiserating me, but you're also you're having fun doing it. (laughs) There's nothing the British public hate less than people who are having a good time. That's true. Conversely, the in-betweeners sort of party is being miserable yourself, but also immiserating everyone else. Uh, like, Labour has <laughs> almost always oh, been an in-betweeners not. party, the SNP has almost always been an in-betweeners party. Weirdly, there was a brief period under Corbyn where Labour almost became a skins party, where people were almost having fun, but people hated it too much, so now we're back to the in-betweeners. <laughs> mm. Um and I, I think this is and this is I think where we talk about the idea of legitimacy as being seen to do or be something. Um, you know, why sort of it was yeah. Bor- why Boris lost uh, so much of his legitimacy by being seen to not you're, take the business of governing you're, you're, seriously. Your French peasant sort of like yeah. covered in shit looking up at the palace and being like, I think the king is kind of getting more of a skins vibe. <laughs> um, but the thing is, right, I don't just want to talk about legitimacy here and now. I want to get back to it, right? I want to talk about ideas of legitimacy in history. So, Patrick, can you please explain the mandate of heaven? Patrick, what is history? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Patrick, what is <laughs> fingers? What is history? <laughs> Okay, so the the mandate of heaven is great because it is the most, I think, coherent package and long lasting package that you get in terms of like putting legitimacy forth as a as a thing, right? So the idea is that. Over the course of the very, very long history of China, that the mandate of heaven, the idea that the that the powers that be 
in the universe were granting the right to rule to a particular dynasty or a particular group of people that this could be withdrawn if that dynasty or group of people was no longer doing the correct things, if they were no longer observing the proper forms, if they weren't honoring their ancestors, if they weren't ruling correctly, whatever the criteria happened to be at that particular point in time. And it Stop varied at different points. Hoodies. In- calls himself the emperor when's the last time he built a moon <laughs> sorry please go ahead <laughs> yeah when was when was the last time he supped from the correct ritual <laughs> bronze like this is these are all the, these are all the right kind of things so uh like the so the definition of what makes somebody legitimate is going to vary at different points in in the history of china depending on who the constituencies are um whose approval actually matters for you to be a govern for you to be the the governing dynasty so on and so forth but the the key idea is that this is a coherent idea that people have and that it can be withdrawn if you no longer meet the correct criteria the mandate of heaven can pass to a new dynasty a new ruling group and at that point they become the legitimate rulers now, obviously it's contested like there's a lot of ins and outs and what have you but this is the key and, and so idea. in this case what happened is the the mandate of the mandate of heaven as an idea emerged in about uh, 1050 BC specifically to describe the manifest unfitness of the last shang emperor who was a bit of a drunk a drunkard and a lout and a layabout. Sk- skins Empire, oh. Skins Dynasty. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so essentially, right, that, yeah, the, uh, the, the incoming dynasty claimed that, uh, the Zhou dynasty claimed that the Shang Emperor was basically too cool. He's too cool to rule and for yeah. school. Chinese Emperor Tony from Skin. Yeah, he was rude, crude, and full of tea. And you basically and- get, you get an even better in between as comparison given the sort of like ubiquity of examinations in the Chinese empires. Yeah. And he kept calling uh, Empress Michelle Knit. Uh, that came later. Those, those came. Those came much later. But then, what's interesting, right, is that this claim then then turned on those who claimed it uh, when the state of uh, uh, yeah, they were called then made scholar the same, hat wankers. <laughs> then made made essentially the same claim, right, saying, "Well, now now we have the mandate of heaven because you have proven to be ineffectual and feckless." And I mean, what I think is interesting, right, is that uh, there's a lot of assumptions I think people make that something like. Um, Something like a, a representative democracy where people are informed by the media and so on and so on is basically the best way to ensure that government works in the interests of the yeah, society. You're, you're Churchillian, have, you know, uh, worst form apart from all the others kind but, of shit. But what we, what we have here, right, is we have an example of an ideological package that is an effect that is that is, is and was a quite effective way to maintain uh, stability and effective government in a state that involved zero accountability to anyone who wasn't uh, also a ruler. Yeah, or an accountability, sort of heaven ombudsman. <laughs> a, an accountability to the concept of the state itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it is a counterweight to rule, but from other rulers for the purpose of this idea of the state that is in abstract, you know? Yeah, the, the, what made the Shang legitimate to rule um, is is something you we can actually see it in the in the oracle bone texts that we have right so these are these are inscribed pieces of bone that were used in divinations and the idea is essentially you're trying to figure out when something is not going right or you're planning to do something like which ancestral spirit or deity is is mad at you and is making bad things happen <clears throat> so you, mad you at me? write the question <laughs> I feel like I'm getting the- subtweeted I, I feel like the trees are mad at me. Sorry, please, Patrick. 
Yeah, it could be. It's it is it is your your great grandfather's great uncle uh, who was who was broadly known for having 17 mm-hmm. wives. This guy is mad. And because he's mad, there are foreign invaders. <laughs> so we, this is this is the kind of thing we're talking about here. Right. So you have you take like an ox shoulder blade or the uh, or, or the shell of a tortoise and you put it in a fire and you see how it cracks and you read the cracks um, as an answer to your question, then you write the answer, then you write both the question and the answer to it on the bone. Um, and you're like, okay, now we've got to do whatever we think needs to be done here. We're going to sacrifice, we're going to cut in half 15 war captives with an axe, and that's that'll do it. Being now, a war now captive, our great grandfather's great like, uncle, Oh man, I hope nothing bad's going to happen to me. And the guy comes in holding the bone, he's like, bad news. <laughs> Can't believe all those war captives uh, ran off and picked up a grenade from behind the curtain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just a long, ta- a long fucking scroll that's like you couldn't yeah. make it up. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean this. the The point is, this sounds. It, when when we put it in those terms, we're like, huh, that seems kind of weird, right? But but this is the ruler's job, and this is the job of the state, is to mediate between all of the forces that make the world go round and make things happen in the world that have agency and this and the state. It's, it's and the about as transparent right? so to me as interest a- rates are, to be honest. So I'm not that weirded out by yeah. this. I just love the idea of a guy in ancient China like getting a thing and they're like, okay, you're going to need to write down the account number. I can read it to you. You got something you can write that down on? I'm just going to, oh, fuck, fuck. And then just picking up an ox shoulder blade and a kitchen knife. Like, okay, <laughs> read it. <laughs> so, yeah. And, but this is like, but th- so this is what makes the state legitimate. This is what makes the ruling dynasty legitimate is the fact that they can play this role, that they can, that they can mediate between all. All of these uh, like powerful forces that inhabit the world and and the world of the living. And when you fail to do that, that's when you lose your legitimacy, when you're not ruling correctly, when you're not paying attention to these external signs, when you're not making the sacrifices properly. Like this is all this all means that you're unfit to rule, that you're not doing your job and you can be replaced by somebody else. When we talk about legitimacy as well, like it's also it's easy. It's an easy word to use, but I think it's a it's a bit of a tricky one to define in the way that we're using it. Steepling Uh, fingers. no, I I have I have a way I've been and been been thinking about it in these terms. But Patrick, do you have um, do you have any ideas? Yeah, it's uh, for, to to my mind, legitimacy is the th- the the trust that people have in the impersonal forces that govern their lives. Right. So if you, um, it, I think it's best illustrated by practical examples. But but basically, like you don't follow rules whether those are explicit or implicit because you think about every single rule that you have to follow you do it because you trust that those rules are in place for a reason or that there's going to be a penalty associated with them and legitimacy in my mind is the thing that makes you trust that right that that things are as they're supposed to be and that by, that I'm supposed to behave in these ways because this is how the world is supposed to work and so it's it's just that kind of intangible quality of trust that you have in the forces that in the in the practical forces and that so essentially when we think about like the end of the Shang dynasty what we think about is a collapse of trust among people who matter which were sort of fellow elites in China around the time that the relationship between the Shang emperor and the state uh, such as it was was one that could be trusted we do not we do not trust him to mediate between the spirit world 
and our world, the world of ancestors and our world. And so, and so now, because that trust has been lost, um, a change must be made, right? So, I, yes, that's ex- so that's exactly. I, I've right. got I've, I've got something a little a little different uh, to my mind. I think it's I think it's similar, and I think it's compatible. Which is, I talk about it as I think about it as a a, a perform a, both a performance of and a quality of a relationship. So it's the relationship of say me to the state or a ruling paradigm to um, another ruling paradigm or a, a person to another person and it is it is our beliefs about that relationship so my belief that my power over you is um is well and good yeah. and my ability to make you do what i want to do is well and good but your belief is basically the same thing and we both have confidence that we both believe that and, the, and it's not like equally distributed ever it, do, it doesn't yeah. like homogenize like you're more in, in the same way that you're more likely to obey a cop than a sign right uh it's the same difference there are different stakes involved in in what something's legitimacy is likely to be to you well that's also i think where the performance of it comes into play sure. it's the it's it's that the performance of the relationship is uh and especially how how immediate it is to you where if the um if the cop is right there telling you not to run the red light versus just the red light itself but you still don't run the red light not just because you think that a cop might be there but fundamentally you kind of believe it's wrong to run red lights and when we and I think when we when we talk this is about where the Unabomber comes in. <laughs> <laughs> when we think about things like um when we think about things like why sort of successive Tory governments would announce a bunch of policies they had compl- precisely zero interest in um in following through on I think it's because there was a belief right that there there was a belief that much like in the late Shang Dynasty that they could not be trusted. Uh, yeah, they, were, they were fucking with national insurance rates for the ancestors. Also, yeah. the thing about the Unabomber, right, is that he doesn't fit cleanly into the the skins or the the in-betweeners typology, and so I'm putting him in a third category, which I would call misfits. <laughs> he, but, he's kind of, um, oh, what's the guy from Parks and Rec called? Ron Swanson. Oh, yeah, you're right, yeah. No, no. <laughs> uh, I, I, what I want to talk about, though, right, is this... Um, where fundamentally, right, they come in, they put, they put forward these policies they have no intention of, of taking forward because they understand that there has been a widespread lack of um, trust in them uh, either to um, mediate between society and the economy, this thing that stands in for yeah, the, ancestors. the ancestor spirits, yeah, or, that, or the other thing, right, the other possibility, and this is where we get into the next question of legitimacy is who is the performance for? Who's watching who matters? Is it that they had to be seen by voters to be addressing these things, or they have to be seen by other people who matter to be addressing the imagined concerns of voters? And it seems like a kind of nitpicky distinction, but I think it's actually a quite important one because it's, um, it, comes be- it comes down to the other big thing in questions of legitimacy, which is who matters? Who decides whether you're legitimate? With the Shang, it was their fellow Chinese elites, right? And when, but with something like the modern Tory party, or um, the question is: Is it press barons? Is it other members? Is it other MPs and ministers in the Tory Party? Is it Dan Hodges? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it columnists? Mm, you know, is it was it, it was it like a jujitsu situation where like you know the, the, when enough of your bros like get the vibe that you sort of get a belt grade up, then you get it. <laughs> but and then there's not like really any system. It's more just like yeah, you've been here for a while and you're a cool dude, mm-hmm. so like you know you get a promotion. Oh, the Andrew Tate of heaven. <laughs> so I mean, Patrick. I mean, Patrick. What's uh, what's your view on this? This question of in, in a modern industrial democracy, this idea of who matters. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the that's what we're contesting right now, right, is the because the the standard answer to that is, oh, you're accountable to the voters right now. That's the that's the answer that we're all supposed to believe. That's the thing we're all supposed to buy into. And that in itself is the basis of legitimacy of the modern state, right? The the people who are in government are supposed to be working on behalf of the people broadly defined. So now, obviously, we know that's not exactly the case, right? Unless the people in the United States, for example, are like rich red state car dealership owners. Like that's the I mean, that is the people as far as a a large segment of representatives are concerned. But we're supposed to believe in theory that they're that they're working on our behalf. Um, Now, the there are arguments to be made that the, the I mean, politics itself is a fight over who the people are and who matters and who gets to divide and who gets to divide mm-hmm. up the spoils. Right. And now it seems like this administration has made the decision that their constituents are just this one very particular group of people and everybody else can go fuck themselves. And that's fine. That's the that the, those mm-hmm. people are not full participants in government or the benefits that that membership in the body of citizens curiously those people are the boards of governors of the state energy companies of other european countries (laughs) which is not necessarily the people you would have picked Uh, because when you when you talk about um when you when you sort of speak about uh you might say like ancient state-like entities city states whatever but mostly what you talk about is that the main power the state has it's not just sort of the, the traditional thing you ascribe to the state which is monopoly over the use of force but rather the ability to command and direct labor right and these and these beliefs in in legitimacy of rule are sort of crucial to the ability to command and direct labor because that's what either makes the labor go do what you want it to do or makes the guy with the whip send the labor to do what you want it to do crazy crazy idea but what if what if the people doing the labor were the people just 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 a thought never work okay um and (laughs) yes well yeah so this this is a really key point because the 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 thing that we ascribe as kind of the most important characteristic of ancient states, whether whether this is explicit or not, is monumentality. It's just building really big shit. And you can't build really big shit without labor. And access to labor either means that you're going on massive slave raiding expeditions to pull labor in, and you're just going to make those people work to build whatever your thing is, or your you have the legitimacy among the groups of people who matter to be able to make people do cool whatever thing. the thing is, whether it's build your ziggurat or build your pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, build your build your lovely palace <laughs> in Mycenaean Greece. Build your moon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are all um, these are all examples. They're They're like kind of downstream examples of why legitimacy is supposed to matter. And so in an ancient state, um, when you have when you cease to build these things, that's generally agreed to be a sign that the state power that existed before whatever form that takes, that legitimacy no longer exists. That, that there has been some sort of devolution of authority and legitimacy. And you can so if you want to look at um, in, in the ancient world, right, if you want to look at uh, I have a few examples of different um, uh, uh, versions of sort of legitimacy collapses, right? One in a sort of civilizational state level, uh, one at an individual level, and one at a ruling paradigm level, hmm. right? So if you want to look at the um, collapse in a in sort of a, in a civilization or state, which sort of brings with a kind of de facto collapse in legitimacy, you just have to look at the world in the late Bronze Age, 
where the I was, complex- was going to say yeah. pre-Columbian collapse, but I enjoy talking about the Sea Peoples as well. Ah, <laughs> uh, those, those those cursed Phoenicians. I I uh, love the Sea Peoples. Yeah. They're just just showing up to add insult to injury. You know. Um, incredible things are happening in China, written in cuneiform. <laughs> yeah, so, essentially, you know, what I, and again, Patrick can explain this better than I can, but uh, you have this complex, interconnected series of societies that do a, quite a bit of trading with one another, quite a bit of command of labor, and then, it, rather than just a, so much, I, I, as I see, right, is um, a, a sort of um, a, a, a being conquered by anyone else, really, is the states stop being able to manage the complexities of the world around them, whether that's changing climate, changing trade relationships with other states, Ch- or change in number the of sea peoples. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the number of sea peoples was zero. And yeah, it's, it's like my, my capacity to adapt to the changing metallurgical situation in the Mediterranean is largely hindered by the amount I'm currently being stabbed. There's too many sea peoples. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're they're reproducing. They're coming over what are they here. They're not, we're not <laughs> equipped to deal with these sea people. So uh, so let's let's like so when we talk about like the the ancient the Bronze Age system collapse. I mean, uh, I, I know we don't know tons about it, but would you say like a lot of these uh, sort of sets of rulers? Would you just say stop that we are in able? it? Would you say that it's happening <laughs> yeah. again now to us? <laughs> <laughs> would you say that essentially this complex so, system got, got sort of overly complex and just couldn't be managed by uh, these sort of local rulers? Yeah. So the idea of the of the late Bronze Age and what makes it what sets it apart is that it is that it is an interconnected world, right? It's that there are there are large amounts, especially of commodities traveling back and forth across the Mediterranean. So the quintessential one, the one that matters the most is metal. This is the Bronze Age. So to make bronze, you need copper and tin. Copper and tin isn't found everywhere. So you need to ship large amounts of it. So the the quintessential kind of aspect of this is the, the Uluburun shipwreck found off the coast of Turkey, which has 10 tons of copper and one ton of tin, exactly what you would need to make 11 tons of bronze. 11 tons of bronze, is that's like that's a shitload of bronze. You can do a, like that's enough to that's enough to make weapon full sets of weapons and armor for like 300 dudes. And you, so you imagine that this kind of traffic is happening all the time when you when you're dealing with 10 tons of copper and a ton of tin that you're dealing with bulk buyers and your deal and the people who yeah, are doing that, the centers of demand. Motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, the centers of demand are are the palaces, right? They're they're these large state institutions that exist in Mycenaean Greece. They exist in the Hittite world. They exist in Babylonia. They exist in Syria. They exist in Egypt. Basically, the palaces, whether they're exercising direct control of trade or not, and this is kind of a debate that scholars of the late Bronze Age have. They they represent centers of concentrated demand for huge amounts of commodities, and the when. The things start to fall apart in the in the late Bronze Age when there are disruptions to these to these trade routes, when the commodities aren't flowing anymore, when the palaces don't have weapons with which to arm their guys. The whole system just completely falls apart. Right. So these palatial economies have existed for centuries. Like they've been they've fallen down before, like in Mycenaean Greece, the palaces get destroyed a whole bunch of times, but they keep rebuilding them right up until the point where they don't. And the reason for that is because the reason why you would build palaces no longer exists. The legitimacy of a system in which the palace represents a locus of authority for a particular ruling group, that's now gone, right? And so the late Bronze Age, the the collapse of the late Bronze Age is first and foremost, 
I mean, people's lives got worse. And then there were fewer people afterward. Like lots of people seem to have died, like just at a basic level. But downstream of that is the fact that the inst- the the kinds of ways of organizing political life that had existed for centuries just died in huge stretches of this world. So people no longer believed that the king sitting in the palace importing commodities from elsewhere was the right way yeah. to do shit. And I think that's is this is one of the and this is one of the reasons why I like to have these comparative history discussions because in a in a world that in the world we live in now where it seems as though, you know, there is but there is this globe bestriding um, sort of cololosis of, of the neoliberal consensus and, and the whether, gigantic pork yeah, market yeah, that we one, all must, oh, yeah, must engage we kind have of. outfitted in an 11 ton suit of armor um, it's it's important to remember that these things can collapse that they depend that, that they are essentially domestic locuses of organization that interact with international pressures. And also other domestic pressures. And as, as well. we've these, seen these with are, Iran, not the only setup that is currently under increasing domestic pressures. You know, it is a vulnerable time for a lot of methods of governance. And and that if you if your method of governance is not able to manage those those interacting complexities, then at some point it will just fall apart. Hmm. So I, I want to talk a little bit about Mycenaean Greece because it's the best studied example of the late Bronze Age collapse. And trust me, it, it will be relevant. And I'll, t- and like I'll tell I you I didn't why. want to talk about so Mycenaean Greece. I wouldn't the- have had you on the podcast. Please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so there, one of the, the big theories going on about the Bronze Age collapse right now is that it's tied to climate change, right? It's that it gets colder and drier and That's crop nothing yields like fall. That's like what's going on now. Like- <laughs> yeah, relax. It's getting hotter and wetter. If you're an agrarian state and you depend on and you depend on generating an agricultural surplus, well, obviously it doesn't it doesn't take a genius to see how that can cause a legitimacy crisis on behalf of the ruling uh, the ruling political system. Well, I don't see but how in Greece it could affect the underlying <laughs> conditions which underpin the social order of our agrarian state here. Sorry, in Mycenae, uh, Patrick, I, I, I mean, really want you to go on. You sound like Ben. I want you to go on in a second, Milo. Can you please explain? This character to me is mites and I'm Colonel JGA Castle. So, I was present at every pivotal moment in history to ask seemingly rhetorical questions and then be shocked at the answers which I found. Okay, governmental psychopomp. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Colonel J.G. Acaster. <laughs> Patrick, please go on. Why? Who, who would keep their okay. own son in a maze <laughs> and feed him nine virgins from Athens? I thought you said he was present for all historical world events. Are you suggesting that the Minotaur was a guy who really existed? <laughs> like King Minos was a historical figure. Okay, Patrick, please go on. I'm sorry for the interruption. <laughs> no, this is this is this is wonderful. Okay, so when you track the climate record in the places where you have the best data, though, it turns out that the disruptions you see in the archaeological record, like burning the palaces and shit, like the things that you really associate with the end of this system, don't correlate with the most extreme climatic downturns, right? So where you where you have the best chronological resolution, there isn't a one-to-one correlation between, oh, no, the political system's falling apart, and, oh, no, the climate's really bad. There are, like, these minor fluctuations, but the actual severe climatic episodes are on either side of the destruction. They're not, they're, it's not like, oh, the climate gets worse and things go bad. What the, the reason this is relevant is it shows us that even, that, like, you can have a political system that weathers these seemingly huge shocks, 
right? Like the, you can you can weather the actual Great Recession or the actual pandemic, but then maybe something small comes along and it comes along at exactly the wrong moment at exactly the wrong time when this other shit's going on. There's there's a crop failure and you happen to be at war with your neighbor and there's this group of pirates from Sicily who have shown up and all of this stuff happens simultaneously and it sets off kind of a chain reaction of events that lead to the end of a complex system. So like the really striking thing about the Bronze Age collapse, insofar as we can tell on the basis of the data that's available, is that the meat of it happens really quickly. It seems to happen over the course of at most about 30 years and you can really pinpoint the most intense episodes of destru- of destruction to more like a 15 or a 20 year period. So whatever the kind of long term stuff that's happening is the most um, outstanding instances of the really bad shit happening seem to be compressed into a pretty short really time. drunk and decided to have a wild 15 years. <laughs> But yeah, I, well, it's because the, the sea yeah. people's like so their I, victims were like, oh, is it the fifth year of it being 2016? Yeah. <laughs> now, the thing is, and this what you said here about um, <laughs> systems that can weather collapse, that can weather these difficult events, uh, reminds me actually of an, an example as to why Canada seemed to suffer less political dislocation from the financial crisis than the US did. Um, and it's not to say that the politics of Canada are good. In fact, I have a whole other podcast about the politics of Canada are kind of fucked. Um, but if you want to just look at system stability, right? And again, it had a, the unintended consequence of house prices kept going up forever and didn't have a break like everywhere else in the world in 2007. Because the Canadian state system was built in the Canadian housing insurance system was built in such a way that unlike in the US where it was semi-private and then the how the mortgage insurers needed to be bailed out. So I said housing insurance be mortgage mortgage insurance. Mortgage in, the mortgage insurer in Canada was fully publicly owned. It was a massive subsidy to, um, to uh, essentially mortgage lenders, especially American mortgage lenders that came in. But what happened was the conditions for TARP, right? The, the conditions for the bailout were already built into the system. They didn't need to be created. And so what happened essentially is that the Canadian housing market, um, it had more political flex built into it. It was able to bear more strain. And one of the... And so on the, on the one hand... There was a more stable response to the financial crisis, but on the other hand, it then created a situation in which housing prices just never went down after 2007. They just kept going up, and that's why Canadian real estate has been in an unsustainable bubble since 2010. Um, but I think that's just to me. This is an example, right, of a of a set of institutions that is more able to weather a crisis than another one. Why eternally increase in house prices, <laughs> oh, and therefore mortgage debts couldn't possibly be a problem. Well, as long as wages increased at a proportionately similar rate forever, which I presume <laughs> is what the Canadian government has planned. Uh, is this what it was like when you first discovered Jerk Vanderclerk? <laughs> no, that was a very different time. We're not talking about that right now. I want to talk also. So we talked there about like entire states or state-like entities just dropping out of existence with these colossal losses of legitimacy that aren't necessarily just connected one-to-one with, say, climactic events. But you can also look at individuals as having legitimacy, not just states. The example I have here is, of course, uh, everyone say it with me, one, two, three, Henry VI. That's a whelper. <laughs> Fuck! Now, um, Henry VI, I think, is just one of the most perfect examples of an individual ruler uh, losing the legitimacy of the people who mattered. And also being closer to us in history, we can know things like the names of the people who mattered, mm. what, their, uh, what their actual opinions are. We can speculate 
as to what how um, many Eton colleges yeah. they founded. <laughs> we can speculate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you, you think after the fifth time they would have like you know tried to no, go no, a different no, strategy. No, Henry Henry cracked things. <laughs> it strategy. was kind of a whole Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe of Henry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Phase three of the shooters <laughs> is launching yeah. in like fifteen thirteen. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. spin-offs, the Stuarts. It was a whole thing. <laughs> Will will I understand the Stuarts if I hadn't seen the Tudors? Uh, so you know you wouldn't understand anything about modern Britain if you hadn't done that. Trust me, I took the life in the UK uh. test. Um, but like what we have is we have a ruler who is particularly ineffectual, and we know that everyone thought he was ineffectual. And um, and so unlike say in like ancient um, ancient Mycenae, where we have to sort of Evaluate. Okay, well, looking at the climatic da- climatic data here, and when the when the Megaron was burned, or yeah, whatever. or even like you know uh, ancient yeah. Egypt, where you're looking at like list of kings, yeah. and you're like, okay, well, why yeah. is this one Boy, scratched? They really out didn't like Akhenaten. Yeah. I wonder why. Uh, yeah, what what's up with that guy? Uh, but, um, but in, instead, you have a bunch of like very flowery Elizabethans like calling him like a lack penis or whatever. <laughs> so. Uh, Patrick, can you talk to us about <laughs> Henry VI, the, the, the lack penis king, and how he lost personal legitimacy? Yeah, so the to understand why Henry VI uh, was was such a was such an ineffectual figure, you have to understand like just one basic thing about the nature of how like English government worked in the 15th century, which is that it was like a whole bunch of it was like a whole bunch of wheels spinning around the king and the king didn't actually have to do very much he just had to be seen had to, to be making decisions mm. that was very helpful yes like that was an that was an important thing like you had to, you had to fuck um and and do so with some measure of efficacy uh, the the king like the king didn't have to like necessarily go out and lead armies in battle the king didn't necessarily have to make good decisions the king didn't really have to uh, the king didn't have to like make policy or be an impressive figure the king just had to s- be able to say i want this to happen i'm the one who's saying that this is supposed to happen that's it you just the king has to make decisions don't have to be good decisions don't have to be the right decision nothing just make a decision henry the 6th could not make a decision so the reason why this fucked everything up is because the whole legitimacy of the whole system of all those spinning wheels depended on the decisions that were filtered through those institutions, whether they were financial, military, down through the ranks of the nobility. They had to be seen coming from the king. And when they weren't seen as coming from the king, that made them not legitimate. That opened a discussion about what who was wielding royal power what their motives were yeah, and well, everything developed the, like, from there. When you throw in a little one imperial of the, like, failure, five hundred warring barons period of British history. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because if if it's not the king who's actually wielding power in the most you know abstract sense possible, then that raises questions about who should be. Right. So the so that opens the door to people like. The Duke of York and the and Margaret uh, and the and the king's wife, whose name escapes me. One of the Eleanors, moment. probably. Um, and yeah, and all of the other people who end up making uh, like placing themselves as contenders for the throne. It's just because Henry the Sixth couldn't do shit, and like you know, it, it didn't matter whether the shit was good shit. You just had and, to and do in, shit. In this case, right? What we're what you see is the. Um, is, is you think of who matters, right? Okay, well, it's the uh, like like in, in in ancient China, it's the fellow elites, but it's the fellow elites within the same state. It's not like the uh, the state kind of gets replaced with another one. 
but ra- well, well in, in a, yeah. so, so, sometimes yeah. we, we get to that later yeah. on there's a reason why <laughs> this dutch guy is very popular in northern ireland <laughs> right but um but what we get is is the idea of one person's manifest unfitness to to rule right undermines this idea that he ought to rule because fundamentally you ask well whose consent matters how is it given how might it be taken away you know and um and and in this case right you know this uh <laughs> But being being the the lack penis king, sorry, I'm I really tickled by that particular uh, imaginary. Every Elizabethan <laughs> insult is like yeah. this. It is like short of dick or something like that. Right. Yeah. There is this, uh, but there is this <laughs> idea that if you again, much like in China, if you cannot bring stability, if you cannot interact with, in this case, rather than like the forces of the global economy versus the forces of like the domestic economy. In this case, if, if you if, can't bring a regular length penis to the table, if you well, sort of, <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you can't slap out yeah. a regular length penis on the cha- on the like table in the star chamber, it, it was the, the problem with the Elizabethan here. system of government. You know, was the king had to basically answer all questions yes or no by doing a potato print of his penis in one box or the other, <laughs> and if you didn't have a penis, it basically paralyzed the entire system. Yeah, but. I mean, it, it, it's this, this. This survives in like uh, sort of antique forms in various other like forms of governance. The papacy has the testicles thing still, you know. So the we we laugh about this, but right at the same time that the Wars of the Roses were going on in England, there were a variety of civil wars going on in basically every major kingdom in Western Europe for a whole bunch of different reasons, some of which were connected and some of which weren't. But in Spain. And in Castile in particular, the civil war slash succession crisis that was going on was very explicitly about the king's dick and whether he was, in fact, the father of the woman or of the of the infant princess who was said to be his heir. And there was a whole bunch of stuff in there about how he was impotent. He had to fuck <laughs> through a funnel um, in order to get the. This was this was literally the basis for why we know who Isabella of Castile is, is because her predecessor on the throne was was uh, said to have not fathered his heir um, because he had to fuck through a funnel. This is this is literally what was too wide for the pussy. (laughs) I I suppose. Yeah, it showed. (laughs) No, he that in order the, the the semen was not powerful enough to move on its own. So they had to guide Ah. it with via a funnel. to its final destination. And, I mean, I think the, the reason the, to bring this up, right, is yeah. partly because it's Henry the Sixth is a very funny character uh, as uh, just a complete uh, a, a lackwit. Oath. I wanted to talk about <laughs> Atahualpa. Yeah, um, but also, but also, additionally, right, that it's um, it's an example of someone who is a a, a person, a form of government in the for, in the shape of a person who is unable in the for, the vise of other people who matter to um uh to let's say mediate. Uh, between them to dispense the king's justice, but yeah, and something that quickly becomes like obviously ridiculous and unsustainable. The second Hobbes is fucking Leviathan lumbers into the room, and one guy goes, "Wait a second, that guy has a funnel on the end of his dick." That it, it just breaks down, doesn't work. Leviathan. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, you know, but you also you know we can we can talk about ruling paradigms is lacking legitimacy as well. So the the example I have for this one is the opening of Japan in 1846. Um, where what you ha- where we have the the ruling paradigm of um, isolationist rule by a kind of feudal military dictatorship, the Bakufu, um, that where essentially we have only at this time we have only Dutch people are allowed into Japan 
No non. Yeah, the horrible decision to look at every possible <laughs> European and be like these the guys. The world's first weebs, the Dutch, the first to be allowed into Japan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they wanted to get the full full length body pillows. Hey guys, I've got a body pillow. Are you jealous? <laughs> yeah. um, you ever been to a bar where women are pissing and shitting on the floor? Of course you haven't. You're not allowed into Japan. No, nothing these guys have to teach us can possibly destabilize our internal politics. <laughs> anyway, time to let them proselytize. Mm. Um, but right when when this when this happened, Tanagashima, what <laughs> you know? But I think like what like this is this because these things there aren't, aren't tidy lines between them, right? Uh, the changing of a dynasty is is much like the changing of a state. But yeah, it, and 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 yeah. and it can go back too. Like, what is the Meiji Restoration if not? Hold on a second. Let's fucking reverse some of this shit. You know, it, it's it's not set in stone, and this stuff collapsing doesn't necessarily even it, mean it's what gone we talk forever. About as well, the, the loss of of an individual, a state, or a ruling paradigm. There's not a clean line between them. I've just chosen some examples that emphasize different elements. Um, what, what happened, right, is that when they allowed the non-Dutch in, uh, in well, when the non-Dutch forced themselves in via the gunboat in 1846, you know, and and the uh, the shogun realized, okay, well. We have to trade with these people so that we can continue our role as the feudal overlords and subdue all of the restless daimyos. Um, but that ultimately, that created the conflict that led to the Meiji Restoration because the daimyos were like, the shogun is no longer fulfilling his role as the expeller of the barbarians. He is letting the barbarians in, much the mm -hmm. opposite of what we expect him to do and what is implied, what is actually literally implied <laughs> by his name, by his title, Shogun. Yeah, just... just Sort of like showing up at the Shogunate with my long, like my long list of like barbarian status and some queries about the barbarian <laughs> status. Number of barbarians. <laughs> if you look at if you look at sheet number three, number of barbarians quite high. Number of barbarians expected by the title Shogun <laughs> quite low. Yeah, it's my I, I, my wife. She's very bothered about the question of the barbarians. Why are the barbarians <laughs> yes. here? When will the well, barbarians sure be expelled? Very much. <laughs> We've had quite enough of the shogun, no longer hot. So right, but but what happens here, right? Is it's not just a, a government change or a dynastic change; it's an entire failing Tokugawa's bad government. <laughs> it's an entire... What's wrong with a few barbarians? Can we have a few barbarians? Your name says no barbarians. <laughs> It's true. He can't read his own name, folks. He can't read it. They won't let me say it. I'm going to say it. He's a no good. God damn it. Trump, Trump would have thrived in warring states, Japan. He would this have done so This guy wants to so rule well. all of Japan. Why? To let her in the Dutch? Why does he want to fuck the Dutch? <laughs> this guy, he's named after a Mitsubishi. You're gonna, you're gonna trust a guy like that? <laughs> this guy gets driven around by soccer moms. <laughs> I don't even know how to go back to this. <laughs> but look, I, yeah. no, sorry, named after a Mitsubishi has just fully destroyed me. <laughs> We'll wait for us to collect our composure again. We can edit out some of the Patrick laughing into his own hands. <laughs> Rocking back and Bash. forth like a nipple. He's got an Oedipus Rex mode over yeah. there. Clutching at his eyes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, All right, he's... Uh, he's, he's, he's you know what it is? Is You're like Pentheus. You've come and looked upon the ritual that you had no business being near. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to pluck out my eyes at this point. Uh, no, that was that was really good. I I can die happy. <laughs> Wait, but when we talk when we talk about this with 
sort of, uh, I guess, well, like Bakumatsu Trump now. He's uh, just in my mind forever as a character. Folks, this guy's wearing wooden shoes yeah. and he expects us to take him seriously. <laughs> yeah. Why are your shoes made out of wood, buddy? Uh, so. Get yourself some sneakers. <laughs> what's what's weird is that like Sengoku Trump is like a weird like he's a traditionalist as yeah, well. He's, too. he's uh, he he he, well, he wants the um he wants to restore the uh, uh maintain the power of the, the daimyos. Yeah, yeah, restore yeah. restore yeah. the emperor, expel the foreign barbarians, preserve the samurai as a caste, but also no wooden shoes because he's a caste. Yeah, yeah, right. But Trump. what we what we ended up getting right after after this this battle because was the loss of belief in the legitimacy of an entire paradigm not just a state not just a person yeah, but you a can whole watch a documentary called the last samurai um, about it and i mean i if i was to wonder right where where we are i would say that there is and what wh- where we have been for quite a long time actually not just since 2016 or not since recently but since like the uh, since the sort of mass um, waves of apathy that sort of have crashed over. Since the first fish crawled out of the sea yeah. onto the island of and then, Britain. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then just said, ah, it's shit, it's supposed to be shit. If you don't like it, you can fuck <laughs> off back into the sea. Uh, but where we, where we got that is, um, is I, I think what we're experiencing is a kind of a, a, a collapse of legitimacy of an entire set of paradigms but before we go across uh, we, we go beyond uh, that of course patrick i want to ask do you have any 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 sort of any uh, anything to add any insights or questions or comments about the um meiji restoration as a kind of collapse of legitimacy of a whole system not just a state or a person yeah i mean i think it, it the meiji restoration is it, the example that it ties to most closely in my mind is the is the french revolution with the opposite outcome Right. So instead of uh, so instead of you ending up with the the total upheaval and, and like really rapid opening of horizons that you see with the French Revolution, what you end up with is a backwards looking conservative, but still dramatically changed way of moving forward. Right. So maybe I don't know, maybe the maybe the, the restoration after uh, of, of the monarchy after Napoleon's defeat is, is a good parallel for that. We're like the world has quite obviously changed, but you're hearkening back to these extremely ancient forms in order to maintain at least the illusion of a connection to the past in order to maintain some sense of kind of this ancient legitimacy. And that's like I think that's one of the interesting things about legitimacy is like that it's constantly being contested and constantly mm. being formulated, right? So, like, you can um, things that seem irrelevant can, when turned to the correct purposes, suddenly become a source of legitimacy. Like the in the like the Tea Party in the United States, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Like the Constitution was not a huge topic of conversation in American political life over the prior several decades. You know what I mean? And then all of the sudden, the Constitution, this, the Constitution, that. We're going to go back to the Constitution. This kind of like fundamentalist idea of of political legitimacy on the basis of a bullshit interpretation of of a founding document, like. That became a really important way for these people to justify who they were and why they should be and why they should be in charge. And now you hear it all the time. That has once again entered the mainstream of American yeah, well, political. We can talk culture. about uh, post-Soviet nationalisms as a like form of legitimacy Absolutely. for the new breakaway states from the Soviet Union. People who 
didn't who like thought of themselves mm-hmm. as you know Kazakh or Ukrainian or whatever as a sort of a you know a trivial cultural point almost, uh, and and then it becomes you know part of the ethos of your state in a way that it wasn't as a Soviet citizen. Absolutely. Like I legitimacy, like identity more generally, to to your point, Alice, is is contextual, right? It depends entirely on everything else that's uh, on everything else that's happening around you and what might seem incredibly salient at one moment, like let's say popular approval of government policies or the idea of being seen representing some sort of popular will, that might not necessarily be the thing that actually matters if your core issue later on is, let's say, Foreign, uh, like the perception of being invaded by foreign barbarians. <laughs> Once again, the big right? so number of foreign barbarian scroll comes out. Written, written in Ukrainian. Exactly. This time. Like that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like for, take take Zelensky as an example, right? Like, what's the core issue there? It's repelling the Russians. That's the thing that makes that that makes them legitimate. It's not necessarily some sort of connection to the popular will. That's a regime in the middle of a war. Right. What makes you legitimate is that you're waging the war correctly. Like so legitimacy, uh, the bases of legitimacy can change and sometimes they can change very rapidly uh, in ways that you don't necessarily expect as as the as you're trying to think ahead to the next 10, 15, 20 so I, years. I have of a question, culture. which is I, I think the thing that we're getting at with this episode, which is where is legitimacy to be found in Britain? How how would we characterize it? How might it be changing? Not least as we are nominally, but I, I think also to some extent structurally with some obfuscation over it. Still, a hereditary monarchy that has just had a big fucking change in heredity, mm-hmm. uh, and which is going to change in popularity. I think quite dramatically. A hereditary monarchy, but becoming increasingly like the film Hereditary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think my, one of my answers to to that question really, I think, comes You're back to make what... a creepy four year old girl the queen. Uh, finally, one of the one of what I come back to right is something Patrick you said at the very beginning, um, not after the moon stuff at the very beginning of this part, uh, which is that the um, <laughs> fundamentally that most people's m- most people's assumptions about what makes a a Western state legitimate is are they ca- are they are they protected from the vagaries of global capital in such a way that they can in- expect to enjoy a better standard of living than their parents and so on and so on. I I have a theory about this, which is specifically focused on the treats, and I think that, quietly, one of the most desperate moments in British government legitimacy were the two weeks when they, like, were worried that the food industry wouldn't be able to carbonate coke anymore. Because the government fucking jumps on that faster (laughs) than anything they have, like, before or since. we have kept drinking that garbage. But I think that's- that's a that's the thing I think most Mm. people think, and if you- and I I know it's Pat, right, because- but- when you're talking about mass ideas of legitimacy, it is these obvious pat things that most people think. Um, and I, I, I think really, you know, what, what has happened, where legitimacy has gone is that after the financial crisis was kind of like our late Bronze Age collapse. The thing that, uh, that the palace is supposed to do, uh, or that most people expected of the palace, the palace sort of stopped doing. And it has sought legitimacy mm. other ways since then, such by uh, repelling the foreign barbarians from the European Union, for example. Yeah, it, 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 it has also uh, like tried to cast away the need for legitimacy and just grab stuff on the way out, which is the Wayne Grow yeah. mode of acquisition. And, uh, but also, there's legitimacy within that <laughs> system as well, right? Where the um, where the legitimate sure. leader of the opposition must seek permission rather than to govern, rather than attempt to govern. Uh, without the permission of the various elites, right? I, I welcome the sea peoples, but I, I would encourage them to interfere with our trading arrangements in a responsible way. 
in a sustainable way <laughs> and in a way that allows us to come to a settlement which works for the people of this country. <laughs> right, and but so, so what happened is that is that when is that that collapse in that that collapse in legitimacy that sort of happened in 2007 that no one has addressed has created this has created a kind of vacuum but that is being still effectively defended by a regime that is essentially homeostatic a ruling clique that has um sort of slowly 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 um allowed that legitimacy to ebb away and replace it with coercion that's where I see the story of legitimacy in Britain uh, going. I, I don't know about you all. Oh, good. Yeah. If, if only we had some kind of kernel here to talk about <laughs> how sustainable that was. <laughs> well, well, surely mind. an entirely coercive <laughs> mode of politics relies on a, on a well-supplied and armed violent arm of the state and an entirely docile populace. Uh, a state of affairs which surely cannot continue forever. Especially if the conservative government remains intent on cutting the numbers of police officers they have access to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there, it's worth spending a minute thinking about coercive force, right? Because the the reason, the whole reason why you invest time and effort in performing legitimacy is so that you don't constantly have to have recourse to coercive force. Because coercive force is hard to maintain and it can very easily go wrong. Right. Like it's very easy. Like, let's say you send out that you, you're there's this was something that you could have very easily seen happening in the United States during the during the George Floyd protests. Right. It was like three cops get separated from the uh, three riot cops get separated from the rest of them. One of them pulls out a gun and shoots and shoots somebody. And all of a sudden they're just beating police officers to death. Right. Like it's very easy when you're de when you're deploying coercive force to stop a populist from doing things for that to go dramatically wrong very quickly. So smart governments don't want to have to do that all the time. So that's why you do surveillance. And that's why you, you know, you grab people in the middle of the night, because if you come to points where you have to face an armed mob or face a mob or face a riot or face a protest, then it's very easy for that to get out of hand really fast. Like it's easy to see that to bring it all the way back to the bronze age. It's really easy to see that as being like how the Mycenaean no palaces burned down. Like, you know, the people came because they were. <laughs> yeah, the the people were mad and they came to the gates of the palace because they were because they wanted to get at the grain stores that were inside that it turned out that the palace didn't actually have. And so somebody throws a spear and the next thing you know, the whole palace is burning and you're like, well, don't need that fucking palace anymore. Like and so. That's so when these things, these collapses in legitimacy seem to, ha seem to happen so quickly, I think it's because of sequences of events like that, where the legitimacy falls away, you end up in a violent confrontation and the whole underpinnings of the system that people just trusted where they're like, oh, yeah, no, I can't drive 80 miles an hour in a 40 zone. They're like, well, who's going to stop me? <laughs> I just I just shot the cop and, who would have uh, right, stopped me from doing in that. an in a in a kind of palace economy but a highly like financialized and globalized palace economy that's based on just in time supply chains i i think that there is such a there is no it, that's what the question right is what loses legitimacy because in my in mycenae or in crete you could say okay well the palace has lost has lost its legitimacy but now with this um there is a sense of such just of distribution atomization um there is the these capabilities are are networked and diffuse 
Um, you know, the question is. Well, I, yeah. I have one suggested answer, which is what happens when people get very angry with who rules them, but they can't really identify who they're angry at. Is you have like a, a Jackery, essentially. You know, people just burn a lot of stuff and hope that they get what they're looking for, you know? <laughs> and, and this is the kind of thing, I suppose, that it's when you have a lot of people whose, uh, let's say, life expectations have not been met and, in fact, have been revised downward very sharply. And you have a set of institutions that is resistant to um, doing anything about that because they're so focused on their sort of, you know, Byzantine. I mean, we could have talked about the Byzantine Empire. I'm almost surprised we didn't. Ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> this, is, this is the problem when we have Patrick on is I want to talk about all of history at once, which is not very convenient because it all happened at different times. Colonel J.G. Acaster in Constantinople <laughs> going... Wow, this <laughs> interconnecting system of court pleasantries and bureaucracy is so complex and unworkable, it's positively Byzantine. <laughs> right, but, but, that it's, um, but that essentially, I think that this is the other point, is, is that these systems that lose legitimacy, they become homeostatic. Rather than interact with the rest of the world in a way that performs that legitimacy, that reinforces that relationship of trust, they instead interact with the rest of the world in such a way as to um, not do that, essentially. This is, I mean, everybody who talks about systems collapse as a thing is like, well, the more complex a system, the more pain points it has, right? The more like, and to bring this back to the treats-based way of, of viewing the you know, popular discontent. <laughs> they could do with one of those, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, the treats, we come back to the treats index. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a really good idea. Uh, they... If the, if each of the if the supply of treats is vulnerable to disruption at a bajillion different points in complex supply chains, then that means that the system, uh, the underpinning systems of that, mm. which are political and not economic, are inherently vulnerable. Right. So like this was during. Um, I feel like in the United States, especially, this was the reason why people were so worked up about gas prices, not because gas is a huge amount of your household expenditure, though. It, I mean, it does matter. It's like it's just important enough to matter. Right. The reason why it matters is because everybody has to interact with the gas pump all the time. It is a constant thing. Right. So, you know, you've got to fill up your tank of gas once a week or once every 10 days or once every two weeks. So you've, you're going to be constantly reminded of the fact that gas prices are going up and that you're spending X or Y or Z amount of money, even if in the grand context of your household mm. expenditures, it's not that huge a deal. What matters is the fact that it's a thing that people share in common and that it's easy to blame political figures for it, even when they, ha even when the they have effectively Biden, no control over what the gas prices listen, are. Listen, Mac, I've been arming the Saudis as much as I can, exactly. but they won't take the gas price down. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, there's, so in a world where the connections between, you know, what politicians can actually do and the economy is so amorphous in most people's minds, like that makes the entire political system vulnerable to economic shock and disruption in a way that was it was I think would have been hard if for you people to, to understand equivalent of gas prices. It's of course house prices yeah. and mm. and also petrol prices, but also, and also yeah. electricity prices, but and, and of course <laughs> and yeah. also gas brackets <laughs> British version prices. But also yeah, we have the we have like gas prices obviously and energy prices in general. We've talked about a lot. In fact, the don't pay campaign can be seen as a kind of collapse in legitimacy of the idea that they should be able to charge what they can charge. But in terms of the treats economy, the Br the British government's uh, birthday boy rating is an all-time low. Yeah. The sailor suit of the British public is tattered, and, yeah. the, <laughs> and the lollipop lies in shatters on the floor. 
<laughs> Unfortunately for the don't pay campaign, the problem with any like any Jacquery for that matter is, you know, what happens to Guillaume Carl? What happens to the leader, right? And the le- the answer is, you have to have a bunch of knights decide that the rules of chivalry don't apply to you, and therefore we torture you to death, but, kind of thing. But what we can say in, in the UK, and again, I'm aware that we're sort of coming to time here, is interest rates. Because what right hmm. now, you would make the same monthly payment on a sort of £350,000 house uh, that you would have two years ago for a £600,000 house. That's the difference if you have a 30-year uh, average rate mortgage. That is the amount that house prices have gone up. And this matters for renters as well, because as long as there are buy now... And also a house that cost £350,000 five years ago costs £700,000 now. <laughs> but, but then that, mat- but that like, matters for renters as well, because a buy-to-let landlord will be putting up rents by that much, which means other rents will go up by that much. And so what it essentially means is that, you know, in, um, in, in the middle of a cost of living crisis, with state support being cut to the bone, at the same time, housing prices already insane are going to fucking skyrocket along with energy prices once the so once support ends. And so, you know, if, when we talk about things like collapse, I mean, I think, you know, the when you talk about things like collapse, it can at some point it has to stop becoming quite as remote a possibility even if that collapse is going to be not, say, directed at a palace or at a ruler, but will be sort of amorphous because so many things have become so, uh, you might say, unlivable. And it can be, and a lot of it can be traced back to a kind of homeostatic unwillingness or inability or rather just not interest in, because they're interested in doing something else, um, adaptation to, uh, to between a global economy and a domestic economy. Basically. Now, on the other hand, have you considered that it's going to be fine? Oh, okay. I oh, hadn't. Yeah. <laughs> what if it was all fine? Uh, so, uh, any last thoughts, Patrick? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... So, the, the one counterpoint is that collapses... I, I, think, I, I think we treat collapse... I, actually, this isn't a counterpoint at all. The collapse is a relatively common phenomenon, I think, in, in the grand scheme of history. Collapses of all kinds happen fairly regularly. Way, whole ways of life can just disappear in the course of weeks, months, years. Like the the thing is, we're so used to thinking in terms of two years or five years or ten years that it doesn't see that it seems like a, a remote possibility when it's not. It, it's like you know, every individual generation's chance of experiencing a collapse may be relatively low, but if your unit of analysis is five generations. Or like you know, you're probably going to get some kind of significant collapse in there at at, at, at least a regional scale. Extrapolating (laughs) from (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's like because every every way of doing things carries in it the seeds of its own destruction, right? Like no matter how no matter how intelligently or um, robustly you think you've set up a series of systems, like there are always going to be weaknesses that are baked into those. And if you run the simulation enough times with enough variables, eventually your things are going to come up right. You know, like you're going to reach the point where you you set off some sort of chain reaction of events that Uh-oh. leads to uh, that leads to some sort of collapse. Personally, I, w- I would simply <laughs> well, avoid that. With all that in mind, I, hey, you know what? Britain decided in 2019, <laughs> let's not avoid it. <laughs> let's run let's run headlong into <laughs> to it. avoid it would be gay and also anti-semitic somehow <laughs> yeah. 
so I want to say, uh, number one, Patrick, always a huge delight to talk to you on the show about various arcane topics in history. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. No, thank you so much for having me. It's the only place where we can talk, where we can, uh, you know, have the <laughs> Kentucky Colonel of history, uh, a discussion about the Mycenaeans, and also, um, you know, why Liz <laughs> Truss is Wayne Grow. This is the only. This is the only context in which I can imagine that happening. Well, it was also it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for you all. This hey. is why it's so long. This character talks <laughs> so long. <laughs> a, a podcast with a Patreon funded by people who live in Britain <laughs> must be an interesting. Interesting business model in a time of skyrocketing costs of living. Uh, take that out. Take what? that out. Take that out. <laughs> Why? Um, so, look, I want to thank you all for uh, for listening, and also to, as Milo said, uh, remind you that there is a Patreon, five dollars a month. You can get a second episode every week. Due to inflation, it's proportionately cheaper than ever. <laughs> Yeah, you can hear more of <laughs> Colonel J.G.A. That's right. <laughs> Just me- more of the, a sort of um, a forest gumping his way through millennia of history. That is correct. And also, live shows. Uh, there's a live show. <laughs> when the 18th of October in London at Between the Bridges in Waterloo, there will be a Trash Future live show. Yes. The ticket link is in Good on Lord. the Patreon and in the Discord. We will put it in the show notes of this episode. Also, if you want to see me... Uh, you can see me there, obviously. Uh, but also, 12th of October, London, the Pleasance Theatre. I'm doing my Edinburgh show, voicemail, one night only. Uh, 25th of October, ADC Theatre in Cambridge. Also the same thing, but in Cambridge this time. Uh, and January 25th, Brighton. Oh, that's a, bit, that's a bit far out. Look, do you want it? There's early bird tickets. You want to get those early bird tickets? There's only 30 of them. Uh, so spe- if you want a cheap ticket. Speaking of tickets, uh, mm. uh, we don't say this enough, but at our live shows, if you are a $10 patron, not mm. only do you get an extra Britonology and Q&A is when we feel like doing them, you also get a discount. When we feel like it. You also get a discount. We should do one soon. <laughs> Guaranteed when we feel like it. You also get a discounted live show ticket. So do check that out. Yeah, it's but five pounds off. What's code on the Patreon? Once you all, once you do all of that, of course, I also have to insist that you listen to Tides of History, the mm. only podcast that I have listened to one hundred percent of. So, Patrick, I go to the gym uh, tomorrow. Please have a new one out. <laughs> Uh, I've I've actually have a lovely interview with uh, well, an expert on the Mycenaean economy. I actually and did downfall. not know that was coming, but uh, hey, well, check that out after listening to this. Set you up. Surely the release us. schedule of the Tides of History cannot keep up with the gym schedule of a man who goes to the gym five days a week. It's simply unsustainable for a show requiring that level of research. Thank you, thank you very much, Milo, for saying to the listeners that I do go to the gym five days a week. I want to. That it's for 90 minutes a day, uh, and I've been doing it for about eight months. Longer than the average podcast. So, well, I'm going to have to start listening to Come Town just to fill the gaps. <laughs> All right. Check out Tides of History. Subscribe to Patreon. Go see Milo. Come see us in Australia. You know yeah. what it is. Mm. Uh, and uh, we'll see you on the bonus episode in a few days. You've heard of Australia. Bye, everyone. Commit a crime in London and come see us in Australia. Bye bye.